Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment strategies. Thank you so much for listening in. Today's conversation is focused on integrating whole class lessons, small group work, and individual conferences to support students' growth as readers and writers, and connects to both the workshop and assessment strands of the PEBC teaching framework. Literacy leaders Ellen Keene and Dan Fagelson believe that when teachers make these connections apparent, students comprehend more deeply, write more meaningfully, and develop individual identities as readers and writers in the world. You probably know Ellen through one of her many books, Mosaic of Thought, To Understand, and Engaging Children are all very popular and illustrate the importance of honoring the brilliance of children as thinkers, readers, and writers. Her latest book, The Literacy Studio, Redesigning the Workshop Model, was just published and promises to deepen our understanding of the power of student-centered instruction. Dan is the author and literacy consultant who leads workshops, institutes, and lab sites around the world on the teaching of reading and writing. His most recent book, Radical Listening, Reading and Writing Conferences to Reach All Students, offers practical tips on making reading and writing connections through conferring, helping students develop their own unique identities as readers and writers. Dan is also the author of Reading Projects Reimagined, Student-Driven Conferences to Deepen Critical Thinking, and Practical Punctuation, Lessons in Rulemaking and Rule Breaking in Elementary Writing. Ellen and Dan, welcome to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Thank you. Oh, nice to be here. I am so glad that I was able to catch up with you both. You both have just released new books. You're super busy consulting all over the United States and even around the world. So I just can't wait to dive into this conversation this evening. I think and it's going to be just such a great chance for us to really unpack what is student-centered instruction all about. And so if you don't mind, let's start, just jump right into the conversation. I'm wondering from your perspectives, in what ways is a workshop or a studio still an optimal structure for fostering growth as readers and writers? How is it still relevant today? Well, thanks, Michelle. I'll lead on that one. Um, I think that we, um, you know, we need a little bit of a history lesson in order to answer your very contemporary question. It goes really goes back to the work that Donald Graves did in the early 1980s in a seminal study that eventually was published as the book Writing Teachers and Children at Work. In that book, Don argued for a more authentic structure for our literacy blocks. He argued that kids do better as writers and subsequently many others have argued for readers as well. He argued that kids will do better, feel more, more ownership, become more engaged and ultimately write higher quality material if their learning experiences in school closely parallel the real world of authors and readers. And he, he showed basically that even with very young children, that a workshop structure that includes time, lots of time for students to read and write independently, ownership, meaning lots and lots of choice that kids have in choosing topics. And eventually we've learned that choosing books is terribly important as well. He also uh, argued for response in a workshop or studio setting, which means that teachers were tailoring their responses through conferences to students' exact needs at that moment. So Don was really one of the first if not the first, to help us in the field of literacy understand what, the, what an authentic workshop model could really look like. Later, a number of studies came out that looked at the larger question of authenticity in 
the in again in in literacy, but also in science, social studies, and so on. And the the hard and fast facts about authenticity were really again that students' work was qualitatively better when they were engaged in activities in school that closely mirrored activities that real writers, readers, scientists, and so on might engage in after school. So the real question here, I think, Michelle, is one of authenticity. Mm. How can we make our readers and writers workshops most authentic, most like what real readers and writers do outside of an academic setting. So in that way, readers and writers workshop, or as I'm now calling it studio, literacy studio, really is our attempt across the country throughout the grade levels to become the, uh, the framework for a truly authentic setting for literacy learning. Wow, thank you. So, oh, go ahead, Dan, jump in. No, I was just going to add to that. Um, Ellen said it very well, but alongside authenticity, you know, I think one of the things that uh, one of the authentic behaviors that readers and writers engage in is decision making, right? Um, I think the one of the prime objectives of reading or writing workshop or literacy studio is teaching kids to be uh, writing decision makers and comprehension decision makers. In other words, readers in the world who can pick up a book and come up with an idea, you know, recognize, name, and extend their own line of thinking, who can um, you know, uh, approach a piece of writing um, with something to say and figure out the moves to make to say it without a teacher necessarily telling them how to do that. You know, most children will do a, an acceptable job of approximating what a teacher just told them to do or showed them to do five minutes after they were shown, right? right. But where the rubber hits the road and, you know, where I think um, uh, we create actual engaged readers and writers in the world is when kids can make those decisions themselves without a teacher telling them to do it, how to do it every step of the way. And that's what workshop or uh, literacy studio instruction really is all about. It's teaching kids, you know, authentic behaviors of that readers engage in, that writers engage in, and when and how to use them, right? How to think about them, how to make their own reading and writing decisions. And, you know, I think um, that's why authenticity is so important because, you know, once again, almost anyone can follow instructions five minutes after they've received them, right? But if you want reading and writing to be a thinking activity, it, it involves teaching into that decision-making. So it's making me think a lot about agency. So if we have a literacy workshop or a literacy studio, or if we extrapolate into the other content areas, there is this opportunity for students to be agentic, for learners to seek out choice, to just, you know, really sink themselves into their learning. Here is a a question though, and it's kind of a sticky question. So I'm not sure if Ellen, if you want to take it on or Dan, I have a couple, couple deep sticky questions today, but what about curriculum and standards? I mean, we can Actually, picture I'll, that. Yeah. The, you know, I'll, I'll start on that. Although I think we both have things to say, and <laughs> to finish, each other, finish each other's sentences anyway. Um, but I think, you know, workshop or literacy studio instruction is obviously and uh, rightly uh, modeled or, or um, based on the individual kids, you know, that, that walked into your room this year, right? And no curriculum writer, no developer of standards, no matter how skilled, has ever met those kids that walked into your room this year, right? So um, while it is true that there's, you know, content to be learned, you know, what I'll often say, you know, in my work in schools is if you're a third grade teacher or an eighth grade teacher, it is your job to teach the third grade stuff, the eighth grade stuff. Yes. But at the same time, you know, I think um, we need to be taking our cues from the students that walked into our room. And I, I see workshop and studio instruction 
as really being two parallel streams of instruction. You know, you've got the stuff that, you know, hopefully they'll all learn by the end of the year because they're all in fourth grade, right? But at the same time, we want to kind of tap into their individual experiences, their individual noticings, their individual points of view. Um, and, you know, this is also where I think um, uh, equity uh, comes into the picture. You know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years, rightly so, about um, how unfair and, you know, <laughs> a lot of um, schooling is, especially to kids of color and, and of lower income, right? Because um, there's no acknowledgement that there are different experiences, right? Kids are expected to adapt to the institution rather than the institution adapting to them. Um, so again, you know, I think the, the beautiful thing about workshop instruction and studio, we'll use them interchangeably, is that you've really got these two parallel streams. You're, you're teaching something to the whole class, but at the same time, you're conveying to the kids that, yeah, there's the work we're all doing, but there's also this individual work that each of you are doing because you are a unique reader and writer in the world. And I think, you know, that question of literacy as a way of defining identity or reflecting identity um, is huge and, and is, um, is not something that, you know, is really addressed in a lot of quote unquote traditional um, reading and writing instruction that, that we do um, think about in workshop instruction. Ellen, care to comment? <laughs> well, of course I do. You know me well enough <laughs> to know I care to comment. The uh -huh. only thing I would add to, you know, Dan's wisdom, which, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with, is that in, in many, many places, most places around the country, there is a quantity problem with standards and curriculum. We simply have way, way too much, which is ironic because the uh, research on teaching and learning is very clear that children do better when they are focused on fewer concepts that matter very much, that are very important, taught in an in-depth manner over a longer period of time, and, and giving children an opportunity to apply those concepts as readers and writers. So, and the application part in itself takes a long time as we know. And, in, in, and if the ideas are important enough to teach them, if they're worthy enough of our students, then it is going to be a more complex matter for kids, should be, to, to put them to work because they should be challenging. So I am a, a huge advocate for teams of teachers getting together and saying, the kids we have this year, what matters most? It's not gonna be the same as, the, as what we cut back on last year because they're different kids, as Dan says. But we have to do some subtraction of curriculum and standards. We cannot continue to add on to them because we can't teach a few concepts of great import in real depth over a long period of time, giving kids an opportunity to apply them. If we're trying to teach everything that anybody ever thought was possibly maybe important. So we've got a quantity problem. And I really believe that the best solution to the quantity problem is at the school and grade level team level, having those really searching discussions about what stays, what's critical, and what gets put on the back burner or taken off the stove altogether. And if I, I'm going to tag on to that as well, Ellen, that um, I think one of the things that I find a little disturbing in some versions, I guess, of workshop and literacy studio instruction that, that I see out there in the field, and I know you and I have talked about this, is the notion that every day there needs to be a different mini lesson. That the perception is the mini lesson is the activity du jour. And when you finish practicing or trying this strategy that the teacher just modeled in the mini lesson, then your work is done. You know, where I think the vision that we share is, is what you just said, that it's less is more, right? And if I've taught you a revision strategy, say, in, in, in writing or um, a comprehension strategy in reading, you get some time to apply it, right? And maybe not every single day has to have a different or new mini lesson. And, you know, 
the day after you've taught a strategy, you're following up on it and checking in on what different kids are understanding. And you're conferring. Um, you're conferring, which um, nice segue there, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> Asley, so let's just take a moment to pause because I think you both offered a lot of thinking fodder for our listeners. Really, we're kind of thinking about this construct of workshop or studio. But within that, there is very, very careful and skillful planning. Teachers are designers. So I think about the PVC teaching framework, we think about planning through three lenses, purpose, people, and process, and really wanting the outcome to be a life-worthy learning experience for all kids, where all kids can see themselves in the text, within those pages, with what they're you know putting on the paper. And so neither one of you are arguing that we dismiss the standards, or as Dan, you said, the stuff, right? We have to teach the stuff that aligns with that particular year or that particular grade level or that particular content area. But as you pointed out, Ellen, we need to slow down focus on what really matters and give kids time to practice those skills. Exactly, Michelle. We've got to go deep. I, I mean, if I hear anything, you know, more frequently than other questions, when I'm working with teachers in the field, this came up this afternoon at an elementary school in central Washington state. It is, how do we get out of the sort of treadmill, the the uh, hamster wheel, if you will, of going from one lesson to another to another. And the only thing that I can offer there is to say, we have very clear data in the field that shows that kids are not going to remember it anyway. When we're introducing a new skill a day and another and another and another and trying to cover the curriculum, they don't retain and reapply. Whereas if we go deep with fewer concepts, giving them the adequate time that they need to practice, as you've said, to apply in their own reading and writing, they remember. So that's the simple choice. It's a difficult one, I think, for teachers, because we're really saying you've got to cut back on, on mm -hmm. how much you're teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is uh, ultimately, that's the way human beings learn. And we can't change that. And we wouldn't want to. So as Dan mentioned, Ellen, that was an excellent segue before into conferring, which is something I know we want to dive into, but I'm going to add a wrinkle to it before we start getting into conferring. And that is the question of achievement. Um, we are in an era right now where achievement is plastered across the media. The NAEP scores were just released and there's a lot of, you know, concern around where are children in terms of achievement right now? And what is this business around catching up? And what about our students who didn't have opportunities to grow the way other students did during COVID? And so I'd love to hear a little bit about um, growth and achievement. How might workshop or studio really promote that deep thinking and that, that growth we want for all of our students? And then kind of diving into conferring um, and, and Dan, maybe you kind of taking it away there in terms of how can we re be responsive to kids' needs? But let's address the achievement question first and then sure. into conferring. Yeah. I mean, I, in my experience, Michelle, and working with teachers all over the country, the when you come down to the individual teacher level, teachers can by and large, define and describe their students' strengths and needs far, far, far more descriptively, as we all know, than any assessment ever will. So the question then becomes, if teachers don't um, build upon, don't need, don't particularly have timely access to standardized achievement scores, with what do we um, examine students' growth and development over time. Reading and writing are about, not about what you're doing today, they're really about what you're doing today versus what you were doing a month ago, six weeks ago, six years ago. So teachers, in my experience, are working very hard to develop descriptive techniques 
for getting instruction worthy data at the student level. So that's where the heart of it is. And we all know that. And the standardized assessments are, a, are a, you know, sort of the, you know, ugly wart on the process that we have to, that we have to, um, to acknowledge and to deal with. But I want to maybe give a little bit of, um, I guess, an optimistic view. And that is that we know that kids who think well, test well. Mm -hmm. Kids who are from classrooms where the teacher is doing his or her level best to try to align instruction to the manner in which the children will be tested, don't do as well. So we have data that show that when kids are agile thinkers, when they're agentive, as you mentioned earlier, Michelle, when they are decision makers, as Dan's talking about, when they are able not just to, uh, you know, sort of take a guess at the right answer, but really reason through what might be um, being assessed on, on norm referenced measures, they're far, far more able to achieve in a way that our public defines it, defines success. I guess I'm saying that, that most teachers do not define success as only achievement scores. We have lots of ways of defining success. More importantly, we have lots of ways of defining growth over time. That's what matters in assessment. But given that this country relies, as you've said, Michelle, on, on standardized tests as the sole measure in many ways of achievement, we need kids who think well enough to be successful on those tests. One other thing I'll say before um, hanging on Dan's every word about this topic is huh. that there are, um, there are inherent biases that we are aware of, both racial, economic, social, cultural, religious biases that are built into um, many of our assessments. I do think uh, publishers have done, have been trying to do a better job of teasing some of those out, but in, in a very real and practical sense, it's impossible to tease out all the variables that make these tests biased. I'm working in Western Washington right now. Dan was working in Germany last week. Last week, I was in Kansas City. Ooh, I don't need to tell your listeners that these are wildly different populations of kids mm -hmm. who have very, very different ways of showing what they know. So when we have assessments that have a built-in bias, though their publishers have tried to tease out the bias, it's always gonna be there because culturally, geographically, economically, our kids are different. So when we're trying to describe them all with a single measure, like the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the NAEP or the Nation's Report Card is doing, it's inherently flawed. And the predictive validity, does the test um, predict success for the, for the child who takes it? Is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually just adding on to that, I recently read uh, Abraham Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And interestingly, you know, you talk about how it's so difficult to tease that bias out of these uh, assessments. Um, Kendi points out that the, the guy who developed the SAT, you know, the one could argue one of the the primal or first uh, standardized assessments, albeit for older kids, was a card-carrying eugenicist. And he actually developed the SAT initially as a way to supposedly prove the intellectual superiority of white people. Now, obviously the people running the SATs now aren't subscribing to that, but you have to think a little bit about, you know, the root of something and what grows from it and, um, you know, Maybe I'm I'm yeah. spouting some controversial rhetoric here, but um, but I really think that you know if something begins with a certain uh, belief system, it's hard to tease it out just by revising it, you know, repeatedly. The 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 root stands. The other thing, you know, um, just responding to what you said, Alan, about um, kids as thinkers, you know, performing better on tests. You know, you you could you could take a, a practice test 
a teacher could give a student a practice test every single day of the entire year leading up to the test. And then the day of the test, there's going to be some unforeseen variable that wasn't on any of the sample tests because Absolutely. that's how tests are designed, right? So if kids are taught to be decision makers and how to handle unforeseen variables and deal with reading and writing situations that come up in the course of doing meaningful reading and writing, they're going to be so much better at dealing with those unforeseen variables on the test, right? Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is, Alan, I feel like I've learned a lot from you just talking about this and the nature of assessments, but, you know, this, this is, this also speaks to the importance of conferring. You know, I, I, I talk a lot about how I think most of us who chose to become teachers did that at least in part because we're interested in the way children think, right? But then, you know, there's accountability, there's school and district mandates, there's standardized testing, there's, you know, as you said, Michelle, all this stuff in the media about achievement. And it's really easy to lose sight of that passion, that interest in how kids think. You know, there's so little time, there's so much to cover, there's too much pressure. We, we can't be curious about how every kid thinks, but I think, you know, if our objective is to find the most effective entry point, you know, and teach students most effectively, being curious about what they're thinking is not a luxury, it's a necessity, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, kids aren't just miniature adults, you know, as Rousseau told us back in 1762, you know, and, you know, it's a mistake to assume we can help them learn to understand without first figuring out how, how they understand, how ind each individual child understands, right? Which is where uh, conferring comes in. And I know that's the next question, Michelle. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask it. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, what we kind of are unpacking is this idea of authentic learning environments for students, young children, older children, adult learners, that having mm -hmm. that opportunity for time and text and choice and to make decisions oftentimes creates that structure for deep learning. And mm -hmm. even though we have these outside constraints or pressures related to assessment and standards and mandates, that it's that curiosity is those relationships that we form with students that are really integral in, in supporting each and every child as a reader, a writer, and a thinker. And so when we think about assessment as to sit beside and to truly understand. Dan, I know that you know your work is is centered on listening. I mean, the title of your new book is Radical Listening. So talk a little bit about conferring in this studio or workshop space. Mm -hmm. How can you know conferring help us be more responsive and and really address the unique needs of each and every child? Well, you know, one thing I'll say um that Ellen and I have talked a lot about is that I think there are two ways we can approach conferring. One is to sort of individualize instruction um, around a whole class goal or objective. And uh, you know, we've, we've just taught a particular revision strategy or a particular comprehension strategy. And now we're sort of individualizing or tailoring that lesson to you know, the, the individual child. Um, another way of approaching it, which is, what I mostly write about in radical listening is actually, you know, back to that notion of parallel instruction, that we've already spent a substantial amount of class time on the whole class lesson, right? The mini lesson, often our small groups are around that. Um, and we only get so much individual time with each student, you know, across a year. Um, I see conferring as, um, as our friend and colleague Ralph Fletcher puts it, that our conferences with any individual child are a conversation that lasts all year, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's not supposed to be that, you know, every time I sit down with, with Michelle or with Ellen, I'm reiterating the mini lesson I just gave, right? But rather, you know, I'm starting a sort of uh, conversation around, um, who you are as a reader, who you are as a writer, you know, during which time I will teach into specific things, you know, that will help you develop your identity as a reader and writer, you know, but 
specific strategies, specific skills, right? So it's not just kind of nice job, pat you on the back, keep up good work. You're actually doing some very targeted teaching, your most targeted teaching, but that teaching might or might not dovetail with what you've taught in the mini lesson, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, I don't think this is a particularly difficult concept for kids to wrap their heads around. I've had this conversation with kids as young as six. You know, there's some work we're all we're doing all together because we're all big first graders now or big eighth graders now, right? But um, and that's the work we'll all do together when we sit together at the carpet and uh, I teach the mini lesson. But there's also this other work you're going to be doing, you know, and the specific work about who you are as a reader or as a writer. And that's the work we're gonna do when I meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. It's not that complicated. Some of the stuff we do, we do all together because we're all in fourth grade. Some of the work we do because we're Michelle or Ellen or Dan and we are specific writers with specific noticings and experiences in the world, right? So um, I think you know everybody likes to feel seen and heard and you know just to be very elemental about it and i think conferences individual reading and writing conferences are for a lot of children the first time any adult besides their parent ever displayed any interest in what they had to say or what they were thinking hmm. right um and you know why would we let that opportunity go to just reiterate the mini lesson we just did for all 20 of our students, right? Um, um, it's interesting, you know, just in, you know, Ellen and I are about the same age, we won't say how old, but, you know, we've been doing this for decades. And, you know, when students come back to visit or I run into someone I taught when they were nine and now they're 30, I guess that's a hint, um, <laughs> the age, you know, they don't come back and say, I remember that fabulous mini lesson, right? right? They remember that moment when we were sitting side by side and, and conferring and how they felt heard and seen and the individual work they did. And two, you know, I think um, it's not, I think a, a common misconception actually about conferring is that because it's targeted and individual and one-on-one, on, one that it's private. I think a huge part of what makes conferring effective is sending the message to our students that, you know, again, there's this work we're all doing because we're all in fourth grade, but there are 20 of us here, 20 different readers and writers in this class, or 25 or 30 or whatever. Um, and we've all got kind of different approaches and different, um, things we're good at and skills and, and, and uh, ideas about reading and writing. So we want you know, that share time at the end of the literacy studio to not just always be who tried what I did in today's mini lesson and how did that go, but let's hear some of the interesting individual work we're doing in this class as readers and writers. And then what I found pretty much across the board in classrooms that do that is that First of all, the level of engagement goes up exponentially because kids feel co-ownership. And ironically enough, they sometimes invest more, um, with, uh, more productively, even in the whole classwork, because they feel like, well, sometimes we're doing my work, sometimes we're doing your work, right? And they absolutely start you know, thinking to themselves, you know, that thing that Michelle does as a reader, where she kind of <laughs> makes a prediction by thinking back, like paying special attention to parts that make her think backward to things from earlier so she can think forward, that thinking backward to think forward that Michelle does, I'm gonna try that, right? Or that thing that Ellen does where, you know, she, um, I don't know, she she mixes action in, with description, um, you know, in the same sentence. I'm gonna try that in my writing, right? So, you know, it, you know, what I, say in radical listening is that I think when we devote time to sharing these different individual noticings and individual lessons that come out of the conferences, then, you know, workshop instruction, literacy studio can become a democracy of thought. You know, it, it feels like we're valuing the thinking of other people. Um, and, uh, you know, what's more important than that in 2022? <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, and Dan, I think it's, you know, so many things that you just mentioned, I want to listen to over and over again. But one thing that's really standing out to me is the way in which conferring with an individual about that individual's strengths, needs, and identity as a reader or a writer help promote the application of those developing skills as readers and writers. As Ellen mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, with workshop and studio, there's time. There's time Mm -hmm. for application. So I can apply the work that I learned in the mini lesson. I can apply my new understanding from my conference. I can try out something that I eavesdropped on the table next to me when my teacher was having a conference with one of my best friends. Right. So there's all of these opportunities to apply and to practice and to grow strengths. And I think that does lead to engagement. I'm thinking about, you know, that relationship between emotional, social, and cognitive engagement. And I know Ellen, you and Dan have both written extensively about engagement, especially in literacy instruction and and why it's so important. But I guess, you know, just to put it into these times, why is engagement more important than ever before? So interesting, Michelle. I, you know, as I'm thinking about that question, and I am literally immersed in that question every week in my work with schools around the country and with teachers who are, you know, I maybe this is going a little too far, but not too much, frantic to re-engage kids are so deeply concerned about the lack of engagement that they see um, among students, especially post-COVID that it is almost to the degree that it's a, it's a learned helplessness, that mm-hmm. kids are sitting back waiting for adults, uh, mom and dad, grandma, whoever they were mo- you know, most frequently alongside during COVID to teachers that there is, a, if I heard, I heard it three times, four times today, this child doesn't have enough confidence. She's so much better than what she believes she is. So there's a a crisis of confidence. It feels like a a great deal of learned helplessness going on. Um, And and just, again, as you're saying, sort of disengaged kids. I like to think about engagement as something that is the child's responsibility, not not ours, not the teachers, the child's responsibility. So the question then, if you you accept that premise just for a moment, then the question becomes, how do we get kids to understand engagement enough to accept responsibility for it? And I think we have just such delicious opportunities to do that. I was working with a class of fifth and sixth graders this afternoon, and I read Tony Johnston's gorgeous book, The Harmonica. Um, to these kids. It's a story, as you probably know, about the Holocaust and told from the point of view of of a young man, central character, who is a musician on the harmonica. And the level of engagement of the kids just from this book, the book did the work, honestly. The book is so powerful and so strong and so important um, that it did the work of engagement but then I've got to do my role. I've got to do my part too. I've got the kids engaged. The book has got the kids engaged, but we have to name and label and very precisely describe what they're doing when they are engaged. We keep thinking, oh, I wish they were more engaged, but are we teaching them how to be engaged? Are we modeling engagement for them? Are we taking the time when we see deep engagement, like I was lucky enough to see this afternoon to say, look, you guys, you know what, right now, this is what I'm noticing. I'm noticing certain um, nonverbal behaviors, like your bodies are leaning forward. I'm noticing kids asking one question that leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to another, to take you deeper and deeper into the book. I'm noticing that some of you are thinking about how you can do in your own writing what Tony Johnston does so beautifully in the harmonica, which is to leave people wanting more, more information, asking more questions. So I think we have to get pretty specific about labeling what engagement looks like. We see it all the time. We don't see it in everybody all the time, but there isn't a day goes by in a classroom where we're not seeing engaged kids. Are we describing what they're doing? 
If we mm -hmm. want them to take responsibility for engagement, we need to help them understand what it looks, sounds, feels, and smells like when they are engaged so that they can repeat the behavior. And so that it doesn't become our job to constantly you know, entertain and motivate and get them you know, revved up. It's not mm -hmm. our job, it's their job. You know, it's so interesting, Ellen. And um, I think part of that, you know, that ability to kind of label and name what they're doing when they're engaged, that's exactly the move, the key move really in a conference. Because, you know, if we if we lose the <laughs> the idea that every time we sit down with a child, the subject needs to be, you know, the thing they do least well, which as I like to quip. Um, you know, if it's subject of every time you and I, of the conversation, every time you and I sit down one-on-one is the thing you do least well, you are going to dread my visits, right? Um, but, you know, if what we're doing is kind of listening for that spark, that interest, and kind of saying, wait, that thing you just said, tell me a little more about that, um, that sort of diagnostic listening, um, you know, I think what we're doing is is teaching kids um you know what what's you know what are, what are you noticing that's worth thinking about right that, that that that's getting you excited and even you know when kids are just summarizing a book there's going to be some part of their retail you know that will sort of hint at an idea you know she you know then she arrived at the party and she was still upset from breakfast but wait a minute sounds like two things here, Ellen, you know, you're, you're thinking about the way the character was feeling. So I'm guessing, you know, are, are, do you think about the way characters feel in books a lot? How does that help you understand the book? So now we're off talking about kind of sensory and emotional stuff in the book, right? Or you, know, you could take that same example and talk about, huh, so this part made you think back to the earlier parts. So it sounds like you're the sort of reader that sort of connects different parts in books. Am I right about that? So now they're thinking about who they are as a reader and kind of getting engaged and, and you know, to quote the uh, erudite Ellen Keane and thinking about their thinking, right? Um, little nod to mosaic of thought there. Um, <laughs> So, well, you know, it's it's interesting because, yeah, I think I think that's spot on, Dan. I was I learned from you and I used as recently as this afternoon the um, sort of speculative phrase. Are you the kind of reader and writer who mm -hmm. I think you're the kind of reader who so that you're naming and describing, again, what they do well and what their propensities are, what they tend to do, what they what they're drawn to doing. And that all relates to engagement. But we've got to be yeah. able to, to pull that out and say, I think you're the kind of reader who, even if we're doing it with kind of a wing and a prayer, if you know what I mean, <laughs> I hope you're the kind of reader who, right? Because then they're, yeah, yeah, I am. I am. Wow. I, yeah, I didn't right. think about well, that, I but mean, I you can see kids sitting up a little straighter when you say that. And, you Absolutely. Know, it's, like, it's like what Frank Smith said decades ago, you know, you're helping them feel like they're a member of the member litter the club. Stuff, right? <laughs> exactly. um, and, you know, I think by naming it, you know, most kids, most adults for that, that matter, don't have a sense of, you know, the fact that they have a reading or writing personality or identity as a reader and writer. So helping kids feel that is obviously going to, you know, Absolutely. Um, yeah. make their engagement you know, greater and uh, make them care about the work they're doing. And, you know, consequently, the levels of achievement will... Uh, will rise, so. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to think about, you know, one of our guiding questions at PBC is, you know, in what ways might we foster agency, equity, and understanding? Mm -hmm. And all of that is connected to engagement and you two just unpacked engagement in such an interesting way. Um, thinking about in what ways can identity be a source of engagement? In what ways can being a decision maker lead to engagement? How do we mm -hmm. notice and name certain skills, behaviors, and dispositions in kids so that they can continue to emulate that kind of work as thinkers? Um, but I want to move on and you can, you know, keeping this engagement thread going. But I want to talk a little bit about a bit of a shift. Um, in both of your work, you have been talking more and more about the connections 
between reading and writing. And the importance of not separating our readers and writers workshop, but actually in what ways can we connect our reading and writing really to, you know, optimize that learning environment for students. And so, Dan, if you wouldn't mind starting off for us, why, why connect the two? And then Ellen, we want to hear a little bit from you too, particularly with, with your new piece around studio and, and that reimagining, if you will, of the workshop model. So, well, Thank you. And if, if you'll indulge me, actually, you know, in full disclosure, uh, Michelle had sent these questions ahead. So we <laughs> thought a little ahead about this. But um, there's a gorgeous quote from one of my favorite writers, probably my favorite living writer, uh, George Saunders, um, whose recent book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, is really a lot about the connection of reading and writing. And I quote this in my book, but I'm, if, if it's okay with you, I'm going to I'm going to read it out loud right now because I think it speaks to um, what you're asking. Um, George says, the writer and the reader stand at either end of a pond. The writer drops a pebble in and the ripples reach the reader. The writer stands there imagining the way the reader is receiving those ripples by way of deciding which pebble to drop in next. Meanwhile, the reader receives those ripples and somehow they speak to her. In other words, they're in connection. Those two people, in those postures across that pond are doing essential work. This is not a hobby, pastime, or indulgence. By their mutual belief and connection, they're making the world better by making it, at least between the two of them in that small moment, more friendly. We might even say they're preparing for future disaster. When disaster comes, they'll enter it with a less panicky, reactive vision of the other because they spend so much time in connection with an imaginary other while reading or writing. So I think this notion of the reading, reading and writing connections is a way of developing empathy and um, understanding between people in the world. You know, maybe that doesn't maybe fit so neatly into curriculum and standards, but, um, but I think it's huge. I think it's, it's, um, I don't think there's any higher purpose than that. <laughs> and I think, you know, just to get practical about it, that um, we miss so many opportunities for fostering those connections or, or teaching into those connections by separating out um, reading and writing in our workshops or studios. Um, I feel like, you know, bringing it back to conferring that there are things to learn. Certainly a reading conference is not identical to a writing conference. There are some very obvious differences. Often in a writing conference, you have something to look at to kind of get an idea of what a student is understanding where comprehension is invisible, right? It's in the head for just as one example. But once I think teachers feel comfortable with each separately, there are so many exciting opportunities through conferring to make those connections. You know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about and I write about in Radical Listening and we'll, and we'll be talking about in our PUBC workshop, the idea of what I call mirror conferences. So if I've just done a reading conference where, um, you know, I've taught some strategy related to inference and talked about, you know, where's a place in the text where the reader or the writer got you to think about something that, you know, she didn't explicitly write then I'm going to look for that opportunity in my next writing conference to say, where's a part in your piece that you want to suggest something without saying it exactly, just like your author did, right? So I think, you know, if we as teachers begin to kind of think, okay, here's what I just talked about with that individual child in writing, how can I follow up in, in my next reading conference on that same idea, right? Mm -hmm. To uh, kind of to, to bring that out. Um, and yeah, so Ellen, what? Well, Sally I think I, yeah, I mean, everything you say makes so much sense. And I, I'm thinking about, you know, no less an illustrious writer than George Saunders, you know, and that stunning, beautiful quote that you shared. And at the same time, as, you know, our, our, national treasures, the writers whose books we, we read, 
are doing that, thinking about the, you know, the synchronicity, I guess, between reading and writing. At the same time, um, researchers in reading and writing as far back as 1983, in a classic uh, article, uh, David Pearson and Rob Tierney, two of the leading reading researchers, writing researchers ever, <laughs> make the argument to, uh, to, to integrate reading and writing instruction. So it's it, it's true as we're conferring with someone, we talk about, um, you know, now as a reader, how are you thinking about this? Now as a writer, how might you try something with that? So there's that, that sort of, um, you know, sort of smooth, facile back and forth between reading and writing in a conference. The same thing is true for, uh, for uh, large group instruction, what I call crafting sessions in the literacy studio book. Um, and really what I'm trying to get at there is that there are times when we're together as a whole where we're considering the craft of the reader and the craft of the writer, but that we consider those together. And there's a very practical, logistical, um, very familiar reason for doing that. And that is simply because we don't have enough time. So we have a 10 minute mini lesson five days a week for reading and a 10 minute mini lesson separately five days a week for writing. That's a hundred minutes of instruction. That's a hundred minutes that our kids don't get to apply what they're, what we're teaching because we're teaching all the time. And let's say, as occasionally happens with me, just saying that goes over 10 minutes. Like I had a lesson with third graders this morning that was, yeah, never, never, that it was approaching 30 minutes, right? And they were engaged and excited and wow, what happens to that? Well, it was a reading and a writing lesson at the same time. And then after that, the third graders went off to apply what we'd been talking about, which happened to be asking questions as both readers and writers. So the writers were struggling to say, how can I not tell, you know, the, the classic third grade bed to bed story where they tell literally everything. We were talking about how can writers leave things out enough that readers will ask questions. And the readers who chose to read today were keeping track of questions they had while reading their nonfiction material. So that instead of 20 minutes at very least of instruction every day, that we're really looking at maybe a 30 minute lesson that combines reading and writing today. But then my colleague, Melissa Steiger, over the next two days, isn't gonna teach at all. It will be only time for children to experiment with what we taught today as readers and writers. So that in the end, by combining them, by integrating them, we're setting her kids up to experiment with questioning as both readers and writers, which is gonna take them into next week and the week after. It's that in-depth long-term instruction that we were talking about earlier, but instead of using a hundred minutes a week to teach many lessons, we are being much more strategic using far less time because we're integrating those lessons and we're in, which is giving us more time to confer as teachers. And most importantly, it's giving kids more time to apply what we've taught and what their personal goals are, as you mentioned a little while ago, Dan, in their reading and writing. When I see classrooms today, the missing element is enough time to read and write independently because mm -hmm. we're walking all over them. You'll forgive me by teaching separate lessons in reading and writing. So the very practical um, sort of implication of this in the literacy studio um, is to, to minimize the time when we are teaching, 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 and maximize the time when they are practicing, practicing, practicing as readers and writers. And, you know, if I could just tag onto that, you know, I'm thinking of what you said earlier, Michelle, about the um, PEBC framework of purpose, people, and process. And, uh, and I think there are some routines that we can put in place when the reading and writing workshop feel so integrally connected that teach kids to be, as you said, agentive. Um, I'll confess that I hadn't heard that word before tonight. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna 
That's going to be all over Germany next time I go to the school in Hanover. Um, but uh, Debbie Miller taught me, so that's a pretty good source. Go. That's that is a good source. But uh, you know, for example, just you know, you mentioned getting practical there, Ellen. You know, how about during uh, when when kids are writing, make sure their independent reading book is sitting on their desk. So when they're trying to figure out how to you know put together you know dialogue and description, you can say, okay, what. Open your book. Let's see how your your author does it. Or you know, how about modeling? You know, during you know, the reading part of the studio, um, having your writer's notebook at hand so that when you come upon a really gorgeous sentence or an interesting example of punctuation, you know, just jotting it in your writer's notebook. I mean, just to have those sort of routines in place. Exactly. Behaviors teach teach them to be you know to have agency in, in making their own uh, comprehension and writing decisions, right? You know, it just sends the message. These two things are seamless. They're, you know, for every, you know, move a reader makes, there's a writer on the other side of the desk, right? Um, exactly. So. Yeah, and it I, honestly, it returns us back to where we started, or at least one of the ideas with which we started, which was authenticity. <laughs> Right? They're working as authentic readers and writers do. When I'm writing a book, I have I spend more time reading than I spend writing. Absolutely. I and I go back and forth seamlessly all the time. You can't mm -hmm. tell the difference between when I'm reading and when I'm writing. And that I think is is the world that most writers inhabit. Um, and that's the therefore the authentic way that readers and writers do it outside of an academic setting, which really is the definition of authenticity, which Don Graves brought to us, you know, gosh, nearly 40 years ago. It's so interesting, you know, as you're saying that I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here at the very table where I wrote most of Radical Listening and I'm, 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 it's, I'm conjuring up visions of, you know, 20 books I had laid out all over yeah. this table as I was writing, right? Exactly. Uh, so, so why would, do we think it would be different for children, right? Exactly. Yeah, I know. Well, I know that our listeners are creating all site kinds and kinds and types of sensory images in their minds and picturing what these classrooms might look like and sound like and how might they take some of the ideas that you've shared in this conversation and apply it to their own studios and workshops and instruction. Um, I know that both of your books are just shock full of anecdotes and stories and images and ideas. I also know that we have the great pleasure at PBC of hosting both of you for an upcoming institute. And I have a feeling that those two days will be full of examples and stories and ideas, but I'm wondering if you might share a little bit of what participants who plan on attending or those who are considering attending might expect. The name of the Institute is the Reading and Writing Connections in the Literacy Workshop. What might participants look forward to? Well, I think, you know, what I'm interested in doing and, and Dan and I have collaborated on so many of these and it's, it's very, it's very collaborative. It's a, a, you know, give and take and a flow back and forth between us as we share experiences from classrooms in which we've worked. But what I hope to do, Michelle, is to um, persuade people that it's worth, it's worth the, the, the sort of changing of our routines um, in, in order to integrate, that it's worth it, that it matters to kids and it's worth it. But more to the point, what are the practical implications? How do we um, think about things like time, planning, mm -hmm. uh, monitoring whether kids who choose to read and write in the literacy studio, they choose whether to read or write. How do we monitor that? How do we monitor mm -hmm. their growth? How do we um, help them be accountable for their um, you know, for uh, working toward the class goals and their individual goals, which in, in the book I call intentions, students' individual intentions, what they want to work on. How do we keep track of all of that without, you know, driving ourselves crazy with record keeping? So it's, I, I really want to, um, to probe into some of those questions about what we're learning out here in the field um, about, uh, about how to make reading and writing in an integrated way work for everybody.
Thanks, Ellen. Yeah, and I think, you know, as Ellen mentioned, we've, um, we've collaborated a lot over the years. And I think, um, you know, we've, I always feel smarter working uh, with Ellen Keene than, than I do on my own. As do but, I um, with Dan Fagelson. But I'll say, you know, what I think participants can expect in December is, first of all, not for nothing, I think it will be fun because teachers will have an opportunity to do some reading and writing themselves, um, you know, as, as a way into thinking about how we might shift the way we teach reading and writing with students. And I also think something that, you know, Ellen's work and my work has in common that I think is why we love working together. I'll, go out on a limb and say, is that we both really like to take the theory and make it practical. I think, you know, you're not gonna find any teacher anywhere around the world. I work a lot in international schools and I've never met a teacher who wouldn't say that student-centered instruction is important. I've never met a teacher who wouldn't say, yeah, it's important to show reading and writing connections. But then, you know, you're left with the question of, okay, philosophically great idea, how do I actually do that? Like, what moves can I, practical moves can I make in my classroom tomorrow, you know, to start making reading and writing connections more apparent to, you know, to what, you know, actual steps can I take in a conference so that it becomes more student-centered, not just, you know, a nice idea up in the clouds, but what do I actually do? What are the kinds of listening behaviors I, I can engage in? What are the sort of things I can listen for and what the student says, right? That I can, you know, turn into a teaching point. So, um, you know, I think we both come from a strong back theoretical background, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for both of us and Ellen, please, pipe in, but I think we both get that the, the, the theory means nothing if you can't give teachers some practical ideas for how to actually do the, the stuff, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I think, I think teachers will walk away with some really practical uh, suggestions for things they can do in their classrooms tomorrow. Wonderful. Absolutely. I just, I am looking forward to our time with you and and learning together. And I think, you know, the, the entry points that you just named, Dan, are so important, right? Like, how do we take the theory and put it into practice? And then what's that first move? What's that first new step you want to try or that new perspective or, or what shifts do you want to make? So thank you both for opening your hearts and your minds and really your hands. I mean, you've provided so much information for us to kind of get our thinking going um, just in this conversation today. As we wrap up, last, one last question. You think about all of our thinking during this conversation, what would be your call to action if you were going to distill what was most important? What would that call to action be to our listeners? For me, it would be the, the challenge to ask yourself, you know, sort of in the quiet of your classroom at the end of the day, to what degree were the things that my students experienced today truly authentic? <laughs> were they really, <laughs> were, the, were the experiences that my students had today something that mirrors what happens in the real world of readers and writers and scientists and historians? Is it, does it mirror what happens in the world outside of the classroom? Because we know from the research and from a lot of years of experience now that authenticity matters deeply. So in that quiet moment at the end of the day, when you can still hear the kids' voices ringing in your ears, ask yourself that question. To what degree was this authentic? Was this day authentic for them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I would my call to action would be much the same. I, the only thing I guess I'd add is that um, you know uh, Christopher Emden talks about how uh, you know equity is listening for where someone is coming from and what that person needs and giving it to them, <laughs> right? Um, and you can't do that without uh, knowing your students first. So I guess I'd, I'd kind of, if you want bumper stickers, mine would be two. One is 
concentrate on learning who your students are before you worry about teaching them because you're not going to be able to teach them effectively if you don't do that. And, you know, to put maybe a little more positive spin on it, I guess, um, allow yourself to be fascinated with those kids. Allow yourself to go back to that place you were in when you decided to become a teacher where you just found what kids said and the way kids think so to be so interesting. Um, don't marginalize that because that's how you're gonna, that's the only way you're gonna connect to your students and it, really the only way you'll get them engaged and then achieve, right? So allow yourself to be fascinated with those kids and, um, and enjoy their thinking. Exactly. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.